So uh, bullish sentiment peaked on July nineteenth, uh, according to the AAII survey, at fifty one percent bullish, uh, which is uh, it is the one year high. We're now down to about forty five percent, and I think you'll see that continue to slide down a little bit as uh, uh, we move into uh, Jackson Hole and. Uh, on the 24th, and then uh, uh, we're going to get some more earnings out, and uh, we have some other issues. But if you think about what happened in the last 24 hours, um, former President Trump was indicted with 18 others on RICO charges. Russia hiked rates uh, from, I think, 8.5% to 12%, and China cut rates. So it gives you a sense of uh, some of the chaos we're looking at in the world today. So I wanted to step back and say, what are the things that we're looking at at ARS to try and figure out um, what's going to matter for the global economy and the U.S. economy over the next uh, 12 months and really what's right in front of us? So, um, you know, the things we're keeping on globally are obviously that, you know, China and their recovery and their debt issues, which uh, we'll touch on in a minute. The wage price spiral that uh, is potentially developing with uh, union uh, contracts and other contracts renegotiated. <clears throat> the deficits, which we talked about last week, but they updated the numbers from the CBO. Um, we have inflation that's been moderating, but uh, has the potential to reverse. You have whether companies can continue to have the profits that they're showing against the headwinds that they're facing how we deal with the labor market issues and then the always present fragility in the commercial real estate market. So let's jump into it. So when you think about China, their uh, ministry uh, came, one of their ministers came out and said, uh, they have a in insufficient demand and the economy needs to be strengthened, which is clear that um, the second largest economy in the world is slowing. And as you can see from the chart, it's projected to slow, but I think what you've seen in the last couple of weeks is the uh, estimates have been even brought down even further. And I think there's you know, five reasons that are kind of top of mind for it with a six overarching one. Obviously, there's a liquidity crisis in the property sector that continues to uh, plague the industry. And uh, I think investments were down five, eight point eight and a half percent year over year in that area. You've had a sharp decline in exports for China. You have foreign direct investment declining. You have retail sales, uh, consumption's weak. Retail sales were up 2.5% year over year, but that's following a, a lockdown of the pandemic. They're expecting, I believe, 4%. So not a great sign coming out of the pandemic there. Um, you have uh, growing problems in their trust and wealth management products that have come out. I believe that's around $3 trillion worth of products. One of the countries, companies that's about $138 billion that was a touched all the different areas of growth in the Chinese economy is now uh, uh, looking at uh, some defaults there as well. So clearly China is the number two economy is uh, facing some headwinds. We've talked about this a couple of weeks ago when we did the China session with Bill and Nick and, and they Nick talked about the transition that China is doing on their economy from, you know, the manufacture of uh, low cost goods to moving up the value chain. And that transition will have some air pockets that I think we're hitting in, in here. And I think that's part of the challenge with China. So clearly uh, um, more to be done there. 
I don't think this is the time to, you know, write off China's demise, but I do think you want to be very careful in thinking about some of the uh, challenges that they're going to be seeing in this economy going forward. I think the next area that a, is a concern is the wage price spirals. And while um, compensation has generally shown some decline in the private sector, um, it has been moving up in the, in the public sector. But the real issue is these big wage announcements that have come in the last uh, 12 months. You had a big increase for the rail workers. The airline uh, workers are up 30 plus percent. Uh, the West Coast stock workers were up 30% with a uh, bonus for, they called it a hero's bonus for them. You had United and American Airlines uh, also up with 40 and 41 and a half percent increases. Now the UAA, is, uh, the United Auto Workers is looking for 40% wage increase over the term of their next contract. And they're citing the fact that the uh, senior management has uh, reaped the rewards of uh, uh, the last couple of years, and they haven't, and uh, that's going to continue to put pressure on uh, companies. And does what does that do to profit margins and squeeze? And can they maintain their price increases with a uh, other challenges going on? If you go to the next area, we talked about de deficits, which I touched on last week. But the CBO updated their numbers, and now they're looking at their revised forecast is not one and a half. Uh, uh, a trillion dollar deficit, but now moving to 1.74 trillion. And they're still counting the uh, student uh, debt relief um, as part of that, but if they're not going to get that debt relief, so we're looking at really more like a $2 trillion deficit coming. Um, and what you're seeing with the government is uh, higher spending, accounting for about 25% of the uh, deficit with lower revenues accounting for uh, another two thirds of the deficit. So real problems here and, and uh, depending on the outlook for interest rates, uh, the net interest costs continue to rise. It becomes a, a bigger problem and crowds out other investments. I think the other issue that really needs to get some more attention right now is we've had positive trends in inflation on the headline side. And this is the uh, US uh, headline inflation numbers. And as you can see, you know, food was up and energy was down a lot over the last 12 months. And I suspect that we've already started to see a reversal of that. I think you're going to see higher energy prices come back in. Food has been stubborn and you add to it wages. We could see a reversal in the some of the progress we've made on inflation coming down. I think this is a big issue in other parts of the world, but it's not one that we can ignore here. And I think this is going to keep pressure on the Fed to hold rates higher for longer. And all this pushes back to what does it mean for corporate profits, which in European, in the Euro area inflation have been a big part of the inflation, uh, which has led to uh, a big push for windfall profits taxes. But you also have other parts of the inflation like labor costs continuing to rise. And at some point, uh, something has to give. And I think corporate profits will be one of the things that give in this area, and it's gonna require greater selectivity of the companies that are gonna be able to survive and thrive in this environment, and those that are gonna be able to make the investments to move forward. So, uh, you know, that's another challenge that we're facing. And then I wanna go back to what are the odds for uh, market expectations for the Fed. We have Jackson Hole coming up soon. The topic for that is the changing structure of the global economy, which uh, will have some pretty meaty stuff going on, but. For right now, it doesn't look like the Fed's uh, from the uh, 
CME futures. Uh, the markets don't have the Fed doing anything uh, material, maybe a 10% chance of an increase at the September meeting. Um, but as we look to move forward to the December meeting, I'm sorry, that's the one too. Uh, if you go to the December meeting, there's an 8% chance of a decline in rates, a 30% chance of another hike between now and then, um, and a significant and a 2% chance of a significantly bigger hike. But if you go out 12 months, you can see a very, di very different picture where um, there's a 90% chance of uh, rates declining, basically, uh, 90 some odd percent chance of rates declining, and in some cases, significantly. I think this is probably an too aggressive an approach. I think the markets got it wrong for most of this year. They were expecting three or four cuts, which we don't think are going to happen. And for next year, I think they're going to be a little too aggressive in their cuts. I suspect we might not see cuts until um, September of next year, the third quarter of next year, unless uh, the markets really start to turn over and uh, the economy really goes into a... Uh, a deeper recession than people are calling for now, which would force the central banks to act more quickly. So in this environment, what do you do and how do you play this? And I think that's really um, the big challenge. I raise these as not immediate issues that you have to worry about, but these are the types of things that evolve into what the future economy is going to be. And this is what the market starts to discount. And I think that they're gonna have to focus on how wages are impacting profitability, but also how the shift of the Chinese economy is going to impact when they've been a third of the global growth for some time. And I would add to it, I do think that um, uh, the inflation trends where one area where we will see a, a more immediate reversal is in Europe. I don't think we can count on the uh, energy prices benefiting us the way they have for the last 12 months. I think we're going to see a reversal there with uh, an already creep in food prices, and I think that pushes headline inflation the other way, and then creates some greater strains on the system and really pushes the policymakers into uh, tougher choices, particularly the central banks, but also the fiscal uh, authorities on how they're going to manage this at the same time the geopolitics are getting a little stickier and sloppier. So I think we're gonna have to uh, really focus on um, the positives that are going on in the economy, and I talked about a lot of the negatives, but the tailwinds are what's driven the market up this year. It's what's driven uh, growth in certain areas to be above expectations. I think the big challenge is China didn't reopen the way everyone thought, and the war in Russia and Ukraine continues to uh, push on, and the offensive has not moved as quickly as people would have hoped, um, and our hesitance to add the weaponry give the weaponry to uh, Ukraine to win the war more quickly, um, says that we're going to drag things out a little bit longer unless there's a big change in mindset from the West. And that's going to give us more of the same challenges that we've had for some time and extend the cycle. So I think we're in a period where you will see opportunities, but you have to be much more narrowly focused on where you're going to see them. I think this, as you saw with the what happened with Japan and China, um, and, and Russia yesterday, the dollar strengthened and um, you saw rates back up. And I think that's the other big issue is how does the long end, how do the rates in the U.S. resolve themselves? Um, does the long end come up? Does the short end come down or do they both 
kind of meet in the middle? And what are the forces that would drive that change? I think those are the big issues for investors to focus on as we go forward. So Mark, I'm gonna stop there and open up to uh, questions and comments because our opportunities where we see them haven't changed uh, from our discussions recently. So questions, comments? Yes, Stephen, um, you mentioned that we will not have uh, the the benefit of of the energy prices moving forward. Would wouldn't the slowdown of the Chinese economy have an impact of less less energy demand coming out of China, therefore less crude oil coming out coming to China from Russia and other places, and creating a more supply of energy in the market? And yeah, normally, down? normally, I think that would make sense. I think what you've seen, though, the last couple of years is CapEx has come in significantly for the big oil producers because of the energy transition. So you're battling, the, the battle is the slowdown. And this is really a, sums up the problems in the global economy, right? You have what should make sense normally, but because of the the distortions like China not reopening the way they normally would. And then you have these uh, flows of, of oil that because the sanctions are not the normal flows, you have all these distortions. But I don't think it, I think because of the cuts in spending that you wouldn't see um, the market just absorbing it. And uh, I believe that we're gonna be looking at rising uh, use of fossil fuels well into the next 10 years. So I don't think the offset is as much as it would need to be to make a big impact there. Okay, thank you. You're welcome. Anna? I have, I have a question. Thank you very much for this very informative uh, data and information, Stephen. The question is around labor market. Do you have any insights into what drives the wage increases? Whether yeah, it's a, a offset of cost of living or retention? Yes, it's supply. We have a mismatch of labor supply and demand, and uh, that's going to persist for for some time because most countries' immigration policies are not supportive of the needs because of the domestic politics or trumping. How do you handle, how do you protect your own people before you bring other people in? And I think most countries' immigration policies are too restrictive to meet the needs that they actually have. And we're trying to solve the problems with people going in. Uh, and we're trying to solve it in in an ideological way and instead of a practical way. So there's easy solutions to the labor market fixes if you had the right immigration policies. Mm, interesting. And then an add-on question to this. So with the wage increases, the companies are still looking at potential risk of profit management, maintaining profit. So there's a potential reduction of workforce to protect the profits. Do you see this dynamic, challenging dynamic? Yeah, the, 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 every company is trying to substitute capital for labor um, mm -hmm. and have not been successful for the last couple of years in doing that. Productivity mm -hmm. has actually declined. Yeah. Um, when we see that pickup and how, how that manifests itself I think is part of what people are struggling with right now is the hope is that AI will do that. But the question is how soon, how quickly can mm -hmm. they, can they fill the gap and how quickly can companies 
uh, bring AI in that's practical, that works and does solve problems as opposed to um, theoretically solves problems, right? That's yeah. one of the challenges. We have to actually have real solutions, not hypothetical ones. And yeah, we're, and we're not there yet. Yeah, being on the people side of businesses, I see a lot of conversations about AI and a lot of fear of what AI, how AI may impact uh, the jobs and security and the future growth for individuals. So definitely um, creates a lot of uncertainty in people's minds and that impacts productivity, morale, the turnover and other things. Yep, and, and that's the other thing that the, the other, the real issue with the labor unions though, and, and this has come up with the United Auto Workers is the auto execs were getting big increases and the workers were not because of their contracts, yeah. which is, yeah. Always the funny because when you're in a labor contract and things go bad for the company, you can't go back and say, well, you guys got too much money versus our profits. Um, mm -hmm. So it's it gets to be skewed arguments either way. But um, right now, the, it's the, the profitability of companies got very high the last year, but was very low two years ago. And it's just a question of how do you balance that out? And I think that's the, mm -hmm. the problem with windfall profits taxes, too. Like how do you how do you ensure if you're the executives of a company pay increases if you're going to then get hit with a windfall profits tax on top of that and keep in business, right? Yeah. So I think that's going to be the the one of the challenges that we're going to see with these wage increases going through. Yeah, awesome. Thank you. You're welcome. Other questions, comments. Mark, I just want to add, I'm really not negative on the economy. These are things that we're watching and they could break in multiple ways. Um, so I think it's just, uh, you want to keep, you want to keep clear on what some of the issues are. So when they pop up, you can adjust accordingly. Um, I think some of these are real though. I think what China's seeing is, is a very different China than we're used to. And I think we got to adjust our approaches accordingly. I got a question, Stephen. Yep. And go ahead, Joe. It's sort of, a, I don't know if it's wrap up or not, but um, you talked about what could go wrong or what to worry about. What What do you think is, is the positives in the economy such that when you think of equities as an asset class, it gives you confidence there's, it's, they're going to deliver a meaningful, call it a double digit, low double digit, mid double digit return over the next five to 10 years. I mean, what, what, What's positive that could give you confidence that's going to happen? I think you have. I think you have multiple. Uh, I think there's at least two different types of companies in the market today, uh, and it's similar to the inequality we see. And I've talked about this, but the haves and have-nots are real. Um, and you look at uh, Alphabet. I think they had something like 19 billion of free cash flow this quarter. Um, Apple is sitting on 200 and 169 billion of cash right now. Very different than the guys who, you know, have been down and out for the last couple of years are highly indebted and um, don't have great growth prospects because they don't either do AI or what worked for them the last couple of years, they can't keep their prices up. So I think it's those who can maintain prices is going to be price elasticity is one of the big differentiators. I think balance sheets matter more now than they have in, a, in since we had normal rates before we went to zero rates. And I think you're going to see the companies that can manage at a 5% interest rate level will be the ones that succeed and the ones that can't 
because they either have too much debt or, or they don't have the growth prospects or they're solving old problems instead of new problems are going to be left on the side of the road. Um, I think there are companies that can take advantage of the incentives that governments are putting out and others that are not going to benefit from that. So it starts to get pretty defined as to where the opportunities are. And, uh, and they're the themes that we talk about, whether it's in the public markets or in the private markets that are going to attract capital. Um, but I just think you'll, you'll be looking at people with better balance sheets to do it with. And I think that'll be one of the key drivers. Um, you and you're going to need to see real earnings. You think that'll move the indices or um, it's really just pockets of opportunity in real stock pickers market? I think this could be a lot like uh, the early 2000s, Joe, when, when you had uh, kind of uh, big moves and then you had an adjustment process that you have to go through um, that we went through after that, where there were pockets of opportunity to make money, but the overall markets didn't move. And uh, at, at ARS in that time, we were, we were very successful in moving away from the benchmarks. And I think you're going to see that uh, where you're going to make money is moving away from the benchmarks. And now you have Fitch downgrading you know, or potentially ground downgrading more of the financial sector. That's not a great setup you know, for the broader markets, I don't believe. But I do think there will be uh, better pockets of opportunity inside that that are the same ones we look at in the private or public markets. So Dave Kroon, do you want to? Yeah, uh, hey, Stephen, back on oil and gas and the spirit of R&D spend, uh, my experience from before is that when it's stagnant and lower uh, barrels of oil, that the, the oil companies will go into record spending on the R&D side, which I suspect is happening, even if it's for you know alternative energy. But then combined with that and a lack of an R&D tax credit in the 2022 tax year, maybe it gets picked up before the deadline. But that that might have some implications. At least I, I see it happening in in the software engineering space that I'm in cyber that I'm currently in that it creates a lot of risk that how much R&D do you want to put in if you're not really getting those credits back the way that you used to? So, Well, in, in the E&P space, we've, they've been cutting, they cut CapEx at, at least 50% over the last several years. So big cuts have happened already. And where they are putting money is the areas you said, it's how they transition to renewables or the most highly profitable existing products, projects. They're not looking for... Um, future growth right now, they're looking for current profitability. And well, I, think I just wonder if the spend will change if the, the R&D tax credit is not reinstated at some point. Does that drive further reduction in R&D spend? Yeah, I, don't, I think they'll spend, I think they're at a level that they're comfortable spending with for, for an extended period. I do think, Dave, you bring up a, a great point, and it goes back to Joe's question. The opportunities are the people who can take advantage of the, of the, changes the government's trying to tell, get people to make, whether it's the Inflation Reduction Act, who benefits from that. It's the it's really about bringing manufacturing back to the U.S. and and helping with the clean energy transition. But I think bring manufacturing back will work faster. The clean energy transition will be more of a challenge uh, for where money is going to be made in the near term. Uh, Duncan? Duncan. Uh, I was just going to ask, going back to the windfall of profits tax, I mean, where do you see that hitting? I know there's been some news on the European banks. Is that specifically a European bank issue and which countries are impacted? Or is I, it broader than that? It's broader than that. And, and it's picking up steam. So I, I believe uh, Italy's 
been aggressive in that area on the banking side, but the UK and other nations have been actually uh, putting windfall profits taxes on renewable projects, which is where they're trying to get people to go to at the same time their input costs are up. So it's kind of a crazy setup that we're putting policies in place to, to uh, that slow down the transitions we're trying to make. So um, I, I wanna do more research on it because I think the problem is and think about running a business. How do you do your future investments if you're getting windfall taxes thrown on you when you're up a lot? But yeah. a couple of years ago when the market was crushed, there were nobody was crying to help the companies out at that time either. So it's really hard to do your spending plans and your CapEx and how you move forward that way. So I think they if they want to have windfall profits taxes, you do them on a with some level of consistency as opposed to you know, if your profits are over a certain amount, then you'll they'll kick in and you can plan for that. Unplanned windfall, it makes it very difficult for good investment decisions to be made and will certainly slow the transitions down that they're trying to make. In the banks, is that, um, have we seen that beyond Italy and can they do that? I'm just trying to understand that a little bit better. I mean, it's, um, you know, you take something like UBS, right? I mean, would they be subject to something like that being housed in Switzerland because yeah. they have operations in Europe or, or how would that work? I'm not an expert on on this area. It's what I need to dig in more to, but I believe that uh, uh, that the Italian branches, Italian business of that bank would be subject to the tax of earnings in their country. Bill, then Mike. Sure. Uh, yeah, to, to go back to China, uh, sort of comment with an embedded question. Um, so China exports like half a, half a trillion dollars uh, to us, and they also export pretty close to that to the UK plus the EU. So even though things are changing, it's still a huge amount of volume. So I, I wonder if kind of the deflationary pressures that are hitting China now could be a positive spillover for us, you know, sort of Western nations, if you will, in terms of continuing to, to try to ease inflation uh, because cost of goods will be coming down from them. And, and that might be a little bit of a, of a, of a relief valve, you know, trying to, trying to find a, a bit of a silver lining in all this. Well, for the U.S., certainly with a stronger dollar and against a weaker uh, yeah. one, and we're we are importing deflation with that, um, so that does help um, on the goods that that are not subject to the other issues that are going on. So it does help in some areas. It doesn't help in the high end critical tech areas. That's still a a problem. But in basic goods and services that are traded, it is a benefit. So we will be importing deflation because of that. Um, we're doing it against the higher interest rates uh, anyway, but um, yeah, it is a, it's a benefit for now. Right. The way the offset of, of, is their contribution of global growth is a third of the global growth. So that's the offsets so of which, which is a bigger impact, the slowing down of global activity or the benefits of lower inflation. I don't have the answer for that one. Mike Daly. 
<clears throat> hey, thanks, Mark. Thanks, uh, Stephen. Um, switching gears off China, I just picked up on a mention of tax credits, R&D, and the Inflation Reduction Act. I wanted to alert everybody that um, equipment leasing as an as a investment opportunity got uh, a major bump from the Inflation Reduction Act. They've allowed the tax credits that you used to get for owning a Tesla now they've allowed those credits to flow through to investors. So if anybody's interested in this topic, I've got some more salient info. We are gonna have a tax related event, Mike, uh, it has an international focus, but you're right to point out maybe some of these uh, basics, we should do a refresher for some of the uh, items here domestically that we may not be aware of yeah this is this is um brought to my attention just a few weeks ago and this section is 45w 45w and you used to have to be the owner and the driver of the car to get the federal tax credit now with the inflation reduction act they've allowed these credits to pass through the investor so in addition to the usual tax benefits of equipment leasing and bonus depreciation. They've added flow through credits and some leverage. And this is a very small offering. So it's not, you know, going to be available to customers at Goldman or or Morgan, those kind of people. It's it's a it's a smaller deal. The the provider is a, what they call an ERA, emerging registered advisor. So they're under 40 million. You know? Okay. I'll put email in the chat if anybody wants to reach out. I think that means exempt registered advisor. Yeah, they're 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 emerging, so they they haven't. Oh, exempt. Okay, emerging exempt. I'm not sure. You're you're probably right, Joe. If you're talking, you, about, if you're talking about the SEC registration, yeah, it's a, a exempt. ERA. Yeah. Because they're small and they're new, right? Well, in venture funds, particularly, yeah, there's certain exempt managers in the VC industry. Is one of them. They got a special carve out, so they just have to file a form ADV, um, form A, I think. I'm going through it right now. So, yeah, less less rigorous, less expensive than the full on RIA. Virtually a non-event. So. Yeah. Well, then any other comments or questions? It reminded me, uh, looking at you, Joe, the Queen City Angels uh, reported on a tour, or it was a meeting of the uh, American Venture Capital Association lobbying for the continuation of that uh, tax treatment for the small business, one of your favorite um, 1202 programs yeah, yeah. and uh, i believe and as the question is if jack is jack still with us that the meeting of the american venture capital association will be in columbus ohio may next year may 13th to 15th we might have to coincide our event to be uh, before or after that uh mark that's correct and that's a good idea Thank you, Jack. And Jack, I am, you know, I, we want to hold a Cincinnati 
roundtable on the 10th after, after uh, the morning after the Queen City Angels meeting or the, or the morning of the 9th, looks like it could fit either way. So we just want to coordinate with you. And I know it has to deal with post-season performance of the teams that you you partly own, but we should coordinate. Hey, well, nonetheless. Can you make sure that Miami's playing that weekend there? That time there? <laughs> well, Miami's Miami's playing the, the 23rd of August, which is a week from tomorrow. And uh, yeah. the, the, the city the city is already holding its breath for the arrival of Messi. <laughs> right. And you've, you've gotten a couple requests for tickets, Jack? You know, it's, um, I, I've been a little startled by the number of friends that I apparently have. <laughs> and it, because it's a larger number than I ever knew. <laughs> Oh, you're the prettiest girl hey. all of a sudden. Now, Paul, in all seriousness, Paul Man Jones just come on and Paul, you've been part of a discussion with you, me, and Stephen. Uh, can I put you on the spot? We're we're trying to see what the impact is uh, of of some of the programs uh, that have been putting money into the economy, plus the student student loan combined with yep. Uh, in it, and you. You've been uh, studying this. Do you want to make a maybe a comment? Uh, a uh, question? Sure. Yeah, I, I think the my, what I've been looking at is, I guess, two things: the uh, the employee retention credit that I guess has gotten a lot of focus. You know, it's endless commercials on TV uh, about it now, so that. When I was checking, you know, I'm trying to actually find the real data behind it, but I was told that it's on an annualized basis, which is, I think maybe he was using a two or three month average, like effectively $400 billion added to GDP. So we potentially have an inflated GDP number for that. And then Number two is the effective amount of uh, $300 a month for 40 million people coming out of the economy, possibly. So that's $144 billion starting, you know, not that everyone's going to be paying, but let's say that's what's due starting in October. So, you know, that's another kind of $144 billion that GDP maybe is, you know, over did uh, for that, you know, that adjustment to come out. And and I, I, I wasn't on the first half hour, so I have no idea what you guys talked about. Uh, so, you know, th those are the, the kind of things I'm trying to do de get detail on and really see, like, what does this mean uh, for, you know, the economic growth of the country? Uh, and then I guess the other pieces are you see all this infrastructure spending and how that really comes into effect, I guess one of the issues was the construction of uh, uh, the, uh, I'm trying to think of the uh, uh, TSMC factory. So that's the, you know, the chip factory in Arizona. And the, the company had to ask for an emergency 500 visas for Taiwanese employees to come to the U.S. because, uh, and, and I was a former chip designer. I taught a VLS, a VLSI course at MIT. Like I know a lot about the business and 
you know that so we don't have the people to yeah. do the work and it's really hard work and it's you have to be it's like you need a phd or a ms to do this work which is actually very hands-on like photolithography is you know it's you know we're talking it's eight i think we're down to like six nanometers now when i was doing it it was 600 nanometers they're working uh, on two now mark yeah. they're yep. down to two they're working on yep and so that's the you know the level of uh of detail you got to get to and uh so how does all this how can you know can we really like how is this going to affect the us if we came in we don't even have the employees here and the last piece specifically about the chip business is that the chip business is highly cyclical meaning and they used to print this thing called the book to bill ratio which they don't print anymore which is you know it's like feast or famines like you're going to we're building all this capacity for for a need that you know, uh, for chips and autos that happened, you know, uh, you know, 18 months ago. So we're building all the supply that may not be a need. And I see, I see Joe kind of nodding his head. It's like that, that that's one thing that you always saw, like, you know, Intel almost went out of business for this, like, you know, well, 35 years ago or something like that. They were yeah, so did Apple. in the DRAM oh, business and they're not in the DRAM business anymore. But you have this highly cyclical commodity business when it comes down to it. And now we're building it all this infrastructure. It's great that we have it. And it's good for like chips we need for F-22s, but it may not be good for chips that we need in, you know, PCs. So that's, you know, that, that, that's, that's why they're not, it's not in the U.S. Because <laughs> like, when I was starting, I remember I was at Maxim Integrated Circuits. I was helping them on something. And then we were working on stuff and then we walked to another room and there was literally like a hundred women like uh doing wire you know building boards and 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 right there in the in the, the designs you know area where they uh so there's a lot there's things around packaging there's things around the wafers so yeah just to end it's just like this is a highly uh cyclical business and now we're building like the reason why we got this all out of the us is because we didn't want to have the investment and now we're putting the investment in well you know you're gonna you're gonna you're gonna feel the the the, the reaction of the, the the business the business cycle in the chips business you know and then multiply that by x times because i'm trying to think of the the other article was that the biden administration has this they call it the 400 billion dollar man this was one of, i forgot the gentleman's name he's helping with all the green initiatives and the investment in the green initiatives. This was in the journal maybe three or four weeks ago. And it just like, maybe the business side, you know, the, the economy should decide where the capital goes, not like a, you know, a, a group, a, a smart group of people, you know, it's, it's better like the hundreds and thousands of individual decisions that, you know, have a better sense of where capital should go versus, you know, a, a committee. <laughs> committees usually don't do a good job in selling where capital needs to go when when you know technically they're hey paul uh, what, what else what else is bothering you uh, keep it up <laughs> that's about it you sure you're on a roll there so i just wanted yeah. to well i think it's uh you know i i think those are the things that we think are additive to gdp and we just got to figure out like 
is it really going to be additive given all those other, you know, and, you know, I, I don't have all the backup behind all this to say like, you know, uh, uh, but well, you know, what, I, these are the, these one, are the topics one, I've, I've been thinking about. One thing we, we, okay. Infrastructure. So I have not invested in deep tech for a long time and there's a lot of deep tech investing happening right now. And I don't know if it's being channeled by the $400 billion man. Um, but I know it's, it's coming into VC portfolio companies that are managed by these VC funds. And I'm encouraged that deep tech is finally in vogue. Uh, may not be optimized, but there's got to be some uptick uh, finally. Uh, but you're, you're more nuanced on. If I could take a stab at this, because Paul, you, yeah. you raised some really important points and it goes back to what Stephen said that, you know, the government has just, done an atrocious job with interest rates and all the money they've been spread, the helicopter money at trying to stimulate sort of income statements and income statement behavior, consumption, if you will. At the same time as yes, they're now doing a massive industrial policy or to re to rebuild our balance sheet assets as a country. And I would argue that, that yes, industrial policy done by a committee in Washington is absolutely absurd and it's going to become a political boondoggle and giveaway to their buddies. We know that. That's just the nature of the beast. But it's a less bad spend than trying to just push money into consumers' hands to get them to go buy shit they probably don't need just to keep an uh, artificially inflated GDP, to your point. Um, they've been inflating the GDP numbers and their earnings numbers and the stock markets and asset values for a decade. Yep. Um, largely through the monetary policy and trying to focus on the income statement metrics, but even that's getting exhausted. And so now they are switching. And I think it's a less bad government policy. Spend government dollars on balance sheet assets. I would just add that the chip industry today is very different than it was 10 years ago. Uh, it has had gone through a massive consolidation. They have lived previously in boom and bust cycles that were consistent with what you saw in other cyclical industries like the energy sector. And I think similar to the energy sector, they've rationalized their spends very differently than they have in the past. And it's become much more defined market as to who's playing in what spaces. So I think it's a very different industry today. It's much more rational. So the, I think the fears of overbuilding in the chip space are probably a little overdone. Um, you also have to keep in mind that you're, you need to, from a national security perspective, be thinking about the chips industry from uh, we need the West and uh, our adversaries need half of what they were producing before because we're only going to be serving probably half the world, depending on how we, how we fragment the global economy. But you need redundancies, and they don't have, they didn't have the redundancies for national security reasons. So that's a big element as to what's going on in that space. But I also think the for years people have been saying that this industry is going to go back to their old habits, and they really haven't um, of overbuild when you have the boom and live with the bust after. I think they've they've started to break that cycle somewhat. I think that is different. It's not necessarily that they're going to keep to it and stick to it, but their plans right now are much more disciplined than they've been in the past. 